Okay, well, we can do intros later. Let's, Let's kick go it. ahead. So we're on the American Chairman Show. Uh, I'm Alexander Prince. This is Jason Roberts we've got here. I, I just want to start, Jason, by asking you a little bit about your background. You graduated from Southwest Texas yep. quite a ways back, and uh, I think you've had quite an interesting ride from there. So can you just give us kind of a high-level overview of your career and, and why you chose to do the things you did and how you've come along? Man, that's a, it's going to take a while to unpack <laughs> all of that. But, you know, um, I guess background about me is, uh, you know, I was the oldest of three kids. My parents got divorced when I was eight. You know, we got custody with our, our father, so live with our father. And, and then we would spend a different semester, one with mom and one with dad. And both parents moved around. And so uh, my dad was in the construction business and did a little bit of everything and also the uh, outdoors business. And my mom was a dental hygienist. And so, you know, I went to like, I think like 18 different schools as a kid before high school. And it was, you know, it would be like the example would be we'd, you know, move to uh, San Marcos and uh, stay with dad for half of a fall semester, you know, play football, et cetera. And then go move to mom for getting ready for the spring semester. And then she would, that would be Miami Dade County. And then it would be Fort Lauderdale, like the other half of the semester. And so, and then the summer came, I'd go back to, to move back with my dad and it would be, uh, you know, uh, Snoqualmie Pass in Washington, you know, and you're just like, wow, all over the place. You're like an army brat on steroids. Kind of, <laughs> you know, and, and I, and I think, uh, you know, what sucked as a kid is that you, you, you didn't have the, the 20 year buddy, right? You're like, okay, I, I, all my, everybody else has got friends for 15, 16 years. I'm making new friends every month. And so as a kid, you were like, this is kind of a bummer. But what I realized was, um, it kind of made me hyper observant of people and hyper observant of my my atmosphere and where I was at in the landscape. And you got to learn really quick to keep your mouth shut. And you learned really quick. You were the new kid at school. So the girls liked you. The guys hated you. And you're like, oh, I got to navigate this. You know, and so I remember one time in, in, in sixth grade specifically, uh, it was hitting hard. You know, sixth grade's a tough time for most kids. And I was just like, um, there was a guy that was going to the bully, the classroom bully, and he was going to test the waters and see what this kid from Miami was about. And, you know, he came and, and you just had to navigate that stuff. And then you also uh, got to see, you know, people in Washington do not act anything like, you know, Puerto Ricans and Cubans and anybody else in Miami, not even close. Right. So for me, now that I look back as an adult on that career and that experience, uh, I have a very fluid uh, ability and skill set to be able to go talk to somebody in New York and relate very fast, where a normal Texas guy may be really uncomfortable about that. And so I can go pretty much anywhere and pretty quickly uh, figure out a scenario, a situation, and read the room really well. So I, I'm thankful for that, uh, all those hardships and those tough times as a kid. But that's an interesting background about me is, is that all that went down before high school. Right. Well, it's funny you say your ability to talk to people in different walks of life, somebody from New York, somebody from Miami, I think yeah. in the real estate business today, you're getting funded from all over the place in the saltwater disposal well business that you did previously. Yeah. You'd worked with a private equity partner out of New York. I mean, you've kind of got a bi business and an interest that have hopped all around the country. And I, it's interesting to hear that it, your background. It was, I mean, uh, so I'll kind of go into each one uh, to give you details. Cause the whole point of this podcast, if for, 
is explaining why we're the American chairman, right? That's just explaining who I am and who our team is and what we do, how we think of things. This is all about just communication. We're going to meet some cool people along the way. We're going to make some really good friends. And, uh, you know, it's, this is just really helping me explain visually and audibly that what we do. Right. And I think through that, um, we're going to see some really, really neat opportunities. And I think uh, we're going to be able to make some really good friends that are going to know some things that we don't know. We're going to learn from a lot of good people. And I think 10 years from now, this is probably one of the best decisions that we ever made was being right. able to open up to this. Well, I think on our end, right? Yeah. We, we work in a small office. There's yeah. four of us around a lot of the time. Yeah. A lot of big ideas getting thrown around. And a lot of times when we have people come in from outside of the office, they're like, man, this is, this is what you guys do all the time. So I think yeah. you being the chairman of our group, yeah. foster kind of an environment where all of us feel free to free to speak our minds, free to evaluate new opportunities. And I think we'll start to look at, hopefully, as we go through this podcast yeah. and get things ironed out, a lot of the opportunities we see week to week. Yep. Um, the way, again, the way we think through things. So uh, I think it'd be good for everybody on here as we talked about it a little bit more. Your background super yeah. interesting. Let's hear about Jason went into the land business coming out of college. I think that's yeah. always an interesting story for people to hear. That's a good one. Like, so, um, so growing up, you know, we, my parents, before eight, my dad was like the number one concrete contractor in Florida. He put all the toll roads in and he was making money. I mean, we had a boat, we had a custom AMG Mercedes. It was slick. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, but it was, you know, the story of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And parents got a little too much fun partying, didn't take care of bills, didn't take care of invoices, receipts, IRS audits happened, divorces happened. Right. You know, all the crumbling down. So as eight, you know, up to eight years old, got to see what it was like to, to, to I guess, to see my dad be the man, mm -hmm. you know, and then see, also see him like go straight down to zero. Right. And so, um, when I saw that, uh, that was real eye-opening for me to be like, okay, I want to make money. Like, I know I want to do some good things. I'm not saying we got to do the bad things to make the money, but I'm talking about, like, I want to make money. So after that, sleeping on couches and staying with different relatives and different friends and different places, uh, struggling all the way through, um, my dad was a great entrepreneur about making money, but was horrible about managing it. And so we'd, he'd make $36,000 on Saturday by Tuesday. I had like four broken down dump trucks in the driveway and money was gone, you know? And so, um, so through that, I always wanted to make the money. I knew it in my bones, in my heart. And I was like, it's just DNA wire. This is what's going to happen. Like it's, uh, and so with that said, uh, you know, you're taught to go to school, go to college, get a degree. There's going to be a bunch of people waiting there to hire you and give you a bunch of jobs. You're going to be a CEO of the company. You're going to make a million dollars. You know, this is all what you're thinking. Well, then you do that. You do the program. You go to, you play athletics and you go to college and you get the degree and you're working through college, paying for your own way. And what you realize is like, you go to the job fair as a senior and you're like, okay, job fair is Walgreens will hire you. And you're like, okay, cool. And Walgreens is only going to accept two people from your entire university. So me and my good friend, Sasha, we, we, we get the job, you know, and we're like, I oh, mean, this is great. Okay. Here's the deal, kid. You can make 1375 an hour working as an intern for us this summer. And, um, if you do a good job, we'll offer you a salary position as maybe an assistant manager right out of college in our management program. You're like, man, this is this, I've, I've been working and this is where it's going to be. So how much money are we going to make? You're gonna make $45,000 a year. <laughs> and you're like, you're like, all right, well, you know, you gotta start somewhere. So right. we're not mad at it. And let's keep going. You get the vest, the Walgreens vest, and you, 
you suit up and you do the program and you learn a lot. And we learned a lot about the distribution center and learned about how those things run, which Walgreens is amazing business. And it's amazing how the pharmacy and just the, the store just operates. I so think any business with that kind of scale, you're uh, talking about so many SKUs, so much stu- so much staff. The fact that you got the same place where you go hungover kid goes and buys a Gatorade and on the other side you're filling an old lady's yeah. prescription and somebody's getting Reese's at the checkout. It's a it's a complicated business. It is. And, you know, and, I, and I'm not knocking Walgreens. And I'm not knocking no. the people I met at Walgreens. But I just want to be truthful in how I was thinking. Sure. Okay. And so somebody's going to get offended. That's going to be okay. That's going to happen on this show. People are going to get offended. <laughs> but, you know, I'm wearing the vest. I'm working at the number one Walgreens in the country, and it's in South Congress. And we're, we're just knocking it out. But I'm sitting there as a college student, and I'm thinking about my career, my Lamborghinis and beach houses and all the things I'm going to buy because I'm about to be wealthy. And everybody comes to Walgreens is sick. They got a coop. They're they're there with coupons. They ain't in a good attitude. They're they're getting medicine or they're there for a different reason. And and so I'm like, man, I'm just not. This is not the, the glory days of my day. Mm-hmm. And the fluorescent lights are cooking on your eyebrows, and just man, it's just getting bad, you know. And so you um, and I'm meeting with the manager, and this manager is good. This manager's he's number one store in the country for a reason because the manager is just great. Right. But he's working eighty plus hours a week and not because he is told to but just because he's just all in he's all this is his deal this is his store and he's all in he's a chain smoker he doesn't he's not in good shape because he can't have time to work out he doesn't have time to eat right he's just always working at walgreens and i remember sitting there i was like i'm making 1375 an hour let me times that by how many hours this guy's working and then i figured out how much salary he was making and i was like i'm making more money per hour than this manager is who's killing himself mm-hmm. for this company every week, right? And I said, you know, that's uh, – I don't see how this adds up. So we went – at the end of the Walgreens deal, we go back to the the conference, and and they're like – I'm like, oh, raise my hand. I said, hey, how, how, how do you get bonuses, and how do you get promoted and get your own store? Do you need to manage three stores? And so you go from 45 to 90 to 120, then 160. This has got to be – You're like important. thinking franchising model or something. I'm going to own five Chick-fil-A's. Again, I want to be a millionaire. Right. How is this going to happen? Yeah. I'm trying to divide the math here. Right. Let's I'm go. I'm trying to lay out my path. And so what I come to find out is the number one store in the country, and because they do so well, they, they – uh, they have their base salaries, and then they get a certain percentage bonus based off of how good you did in the previous year. So even though we were number one, killing it, smoking mm-hmm. all the other stores, I could not get a bonus unless we exceeded last year's performance. So then I really quickly figured out that the math added up. We should sandbag next year. Right. Next year, we should just close the damn doors. <laughs> and just... They're like, this guy's too entrepreneurial. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and I raised my hand, and I asked the guy who's in charge of the program about that, and he said... Uh, you know, Jason, I just don't think people here ha- at Walgreens have that kind of attitude. Right. And I'm like, I'm not mad at the store trying to close. It. I'm just trying to say is like financially, it makes sense for me to sandbag it this right. year. The next year, knock it out of the park, be number one again, and then go back to number back to zero again. Mm. And then I just I just kind of sat there and I was like, this really sucks. Like, I can't become a millionaire like this until like 30 years. Mm. This is bullshit. I don't this is not my game. I don't want to do that. But I didn't have another way. I didn't know of how to make money. I didn't know there was another way. And um, there was nobody, after getting a college degree, after doing all the things, there's nobody there showing you how to make millions. And there, at the, there's nobody at the job fair trying to make you a millionaire. And so I was like, this is not what I thought. Right. So then my father-in-law 
uh, now, who wasn't then, um, you know, uh, he said, you know, Jason, I have some land. Would you be interested in helping me sell some land? I got a couple salespeople that have fallen off, and would you be interested in helping? And, and I thought I was doing him a favor. Homeboy was just very politely doing me a favor. Right. And, and Nobody showed you how to make a million bucks. Super Here smart. I come. <laughs> and he was just like, oh, you know, he's like, I'll pay for the gas. I'll pay for the ads. Let's just let it kind of come out of the commissions. I'll pay you. Uh, you know, probably aggressive 10% because it's you're selling a, a acreage home site that has no house on it and just land for people to buy and they can buy owner financed. And so I learned a lot about that. So I run ads for six weeks maybe, and then we, you know, three weeks of showing and I'm still wearing the vest at Walgreens during the day and then the evenings and weekends I'm showing the land and uh, and I'm, I'm just grumpy and I'm grumpy and I'm, I'm just like three weeks has gone by. I've been showing the stupid property. It's got transmission power lines going across the top of it. Who wants to buy this property? Nobody wants to buy this property. And I'm, and I'm a, just a bitter, entitled little college kid, you know. <laughs> and we're out there, and this guy, Saturday, and the guy looks at the, I show him the four corners, and I'm kind of just being a punk. And I said, here's four corners of the property. You know, quite frankly, do, do you, is this what you look, what you want? Do you want to buy this? And he was like, yeah, I do. And he whips out his down payment, $3,500 right there on the spot. I panic, don't know how to do any of the paperwork. And I'm like, give me your $3,500 and I'll meet you tomorrow with the paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. I didn't bring the contracts I, I, I along just, with me. You I'm know? fumbling and I'm yeah. like, oh man, I got I got I got a bite. And I'm right. like, it's like a fishing. And I all of a sudden, I just don't know what to do with the fishing rod. Yeah. You've been out there for six weeks with that panicking. bobber dipping, not doing anything. And it dips one day. Panicking, right. you know? <laughs> so I was like, I convinced the guy he's smiling. He's laughing. He's like, okay, no problem. And he trusts me, and I'm like, I'll meet you here tomorrow. What paperwork will be all filled out, everything, and get your signatures and go. And then, so I take 3,500 bucks, and that was my commission. Mm-hmm. And so I say, okay, hold on, let's take 3,500 dollars here. I just made this much money, and let's divide that by 13.75 an hour, and it comes out to like at 40 hours a week. It's like six weeks mm-hmm. of work. And so then I quickly, you know, do the math and look around. There's like another. $120,000 worth of commissions with the other lots available in the area if you just, they're there. You just got to show them and sell them. Right. So I'm like, hold on. If I got a tent and stayed out here on this property and answered every single phone call and showed every piece of property, and all I did was sell one piece of property between now and six weeks, I still make more money than I ever would at Walgreens wearing the vest dealing with people that are grumpy, mad, and counting their coupons and all the things, the bad things that I was on my feet all day. Mm-hmm. And I'm out here in the sunshine. I'm a country boy. This is this is it, right? So then I say light bulbs go off like crazy. The only limiting factor is not a regional manager telling me i got to sandbag it next year. The limiting factor is me, and it's me having a good attitude and matching people with what they want. Mm-hmm. And what I realized about the guys buying the 10 acres of land was is he uh, – this is what he worked his rear end off for 10, 15 years and had saved up his money. This was his dream was to always own his own 10 acres of land. Just because I had a transmission line going across it, like he wasn't mad at it. And so I realized that my dream and my property was not his dream. And I was supposed to be paying attention to him, not me. Mm-hmm. And I learned so much in that first sale. And I still remember it like crystal clear yesterday. And I absorbed every ounce of that lesson. And uh, so when I, we, we, we got the money, I divided it, and I said, 
this is how I get rich. I can make 120 grand in the summer. I could never make 120 grand at Walgreens. And then I can go do another deal. If I sell this really fast, I can go, go to buy, I can go buy my own property. And I can go. So the summer flies by. That summer, uh, I made $86,000 in commissions that summer. And I took 21 hours of school that summer to graduate and get out of school early because I had figured it out. I was like, school's over. Let's get the hell out of here. And let's go make some money. And but you I, quit your Walgreens job in the midst I of that? did. I turned in the letter of resignation <laughs> said, the program's probably not going to be for me. Handed over the vest. I'm the guy that's going to sandbag it next year. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I was like, ah, oh, it's not going to be good. And there were some great people there, but I just uh, – it just what it was a good wake up call for me. Well, I think one of the things too for a lot of people looking for what they want to do with their lives. I know this is this applies to me for certain. It's just a lot of the times you figure out what you want to do by figuring out what you don't want to do. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's there's nothing wrong with it. It was great for a lot of people. Just my the way the recipe that I was made and the way we were, I was raised and coming up just wasn't there. Yeah, and uh, and so. Uh, sold, we sold land there within six months. Um, I had probably read no less than 20 books and probably 10, you know, zero money down payment, real estate Mm -hmm. courses and books. I mean, if I could afford it, I got it. And one of the best books I bought was $2.99. And it was a used book from Hastings back then. And, uh, it was uh, the art of listing and selling real estate by Tom Hawkins. Killed it. This is guy sitting there on the cover of the book. He's got a toupee, and he it looks a little cheesy, <laughs> but, I mean. I'm, guy I'm, knows his stuff. I'm going to sell some real estate. <laughs> you know? And so um, I looked, read the book, and I was like, this is it. Change your vocabulary. Change the way you're talking, how, how to answer the phone call. Like, don't give directions. Always show the person. Like, just mm-hmm. technique. It was like a karate technique version of how to, how to fight. And I'm mm-hmm. like, this is great. Um, had my first land deal within six months. So my brother-in-law, Zach was selling land for my father-in-law as well and had a hard time getting deals. Well, then within six months, I just didn't know enough that I wasn't quite offensive when I would make an offer on property. So, and people weren't too offended with it. So we made our first offer was 58 acres and it was on the market for $3,000 an acre. And I offered them a thousand dollars an acre and it was a little floodplain oil wells on it and all kinds of stuff. And they were like, yeah, sure. We'll take it. And so we were scrambling they had no idea they're going to accept our offer. We cut it into five pieces. We sold one piece for $50,000. So then we other four pieces we own free and clear and we owner finance those four. So then we were off to the races. So I guess just to kind of try and fill in that gap cuz you go from land salesman, you meet your brother-in-law, you're you're working with your father-in-law. How did you kind of advance your skill set past just listing real estate for somebody else to actually becoming an owner yourself and and all that. Well, so we were selling real estate for our father-in-law, and it was like three or four guy, group of guys that were developers. And these guys are old-school developers, been doing it since the 70s, mm-hmm. right? And uh, they're older. They're making a lot of money. They're liking to play golf. They don't like to deal with the daily sales. So it was time for a new blood to come in and, and to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but once we were selling and made income, we lived off of the income. Like, that's what we used to pay the grocery bills and the lights. Right. But... We were also worried if what if we sell all these guys inventory, we're going to be out of a job. We probably should go find some of our own land mm-hmm. to sell. So not only we can become a developer, but make sure we got some inventory to keep, keep right. the lights on. So I would say almost a little bit of an element of survival of making sure you got some stuff. 
And so we never really went through the real estate process of courting people to sell their property for them outside of our own group. Uh, And I think that panic or that survival instinct of making sure you had your own inventory Mm -hmm. became superior to wanting to be a good real estate broker. Right. You're thinking at that point, I'm going to take one more step up the ladder and control my own destiny where if I'm needing to sell real estate, then I better go figure out some real estate. I better go get some real estate to sell. Better be buying it. The richest people I know are the ones that own it. Right. But maybe we ought to be able to become an owner. Yeah. And brick by brick, let's get after it. And so we, me and Zach took 10,000 bucks each and we bought that first 50 acres of land. Uh, father-in-law co-signed on the loan for us, helped us get there. Um, and I don't think he did co-sign. He helped me on my first loan. And then uh, we, um, 18 months later, we had turned that $10,000 into $1.8 million. Wow. I mean, so we had just, we saw the path, saw the commissions, and read the books, and it was 16-hour days. So let's go. Yeah. And we had young kids at that time, too. And so it was it was all in. And, uh, you know, we never touched that $10,000 of investment income. It, we lived off the commissions, and that just compounded and compounded and compounded. And uh, so that was the initial start of real estate and the initial of doing land deals and developments and selling things and owning things. And then um, from there, we... Um, we got known as guys that were doing good in real estate that were good workers, good, you know, we had a good character, good you know, reputation. So give uh, me a time frame on all this. That's too. 2004. Because this is an interesting, your real estate journey definitely is interesting in, in terms of your timeline. You started in 01, 02, around that timeline? Well, I mean, no, no, I, I, I didn't graduate college. Senior year was 2004. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so you're coming out in 04 and doing this. Yeah, 2004. And, um, so we do this about through the 2005. We go to uh, move to College Station, O'Brien, Texas, and open up a company called Aggieland Apartment Finders. We see that there's there's college students and there's leasing agents and there's a ton of apartments and tons of them. We'll make good money, you know, doing an apartment locating business. And uh, so we go open up this company and we think we're going to hire every fraternity president, sorority president, and we're going to get them to get their license and they're going to get all their friends are going to use them. And we're like, this is going to be great. We run the numbers Excel spreadsheet, just says it's going to produce a ton of money, <laughs> you know. And uh, we go, and man, I, I instantly don't like it. Yeah. I, we go, and I'm like, this guy is fraternity president. He, nobody's coming in. He doesn't even care. He just got his license to make his parents happy. Right. Like, he is not in this to make 300 leases this year. Like, he's in this to keep his parents happy, and he thinks they got a job, and He's out having a good time on the weekend. Right. So then I'm like, man, I'm really dependent upon these college kids to be motivated to make income. And they're not motivated. They think they're motivated, but they're not. And we're not going to make the money. And I'm like, I see it. I see the, the writing on the wall. Like, we're going to, what money I want to make in this investment from our time is not going to happen. So I am immediately start looking for more land deals. I'm like, we're making more money on land deals. I'm looking for more. And uh, immediately find a fix or fix. Flip. I do the foreclosure listing service, and I start looking at the county records for fixer flips and fixes up. And this is all before there was cool TV shows about it. So you're going on the court. I mean, in Texas, right? You're going on the courthouse steps to to bid on these things. Yeah, I'm looking them up. And so what I did is I looked them up, and I was like, if I wait for the courthouse steps, I got to compete with all the other investors in town. Right. But I got this notice, and it's 21 days till the to the sale. Well, I'm just going to knock on the door and buy it from the people directly. So I go knock on the door of this house in Marsteller, and I talk to people and they're not interested in uh 
you know, keeping it. So they're interested in letting it go. They don't want to lose it, but they all, they know they're out of money. So I work out a real creative deal. I assume their loan, pay the big payments. It's current. And then I go to pay it off and then we fix it up and we fix this house up and sell it. We make like 40 grand in profit on this house. So it was a lot of work. Me and my wife, we lost 20 pounds painting that thing. <laughs> you know, it was a lot, uh, still funny memories about it today. And, uh, it was great because that was our fixer flip. But I, so I, I learned something about myself in that venture, which was if the numbers aren't there, if you just can't get there, just like in Walgreens, I immediately lost all heart and passion and interest in it. Right. Even though I would, I wanted to start this business, I can't proudly tell you that I'm a white knuckler and I wanted to white knuckle it out and be the best big apartment locator ever. No, 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 no. I was selfish and focused on making income. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that it wasn't happening, I was like, we got to do something else to make it happen. Right. Also, in that case, right, if you're you're dependent on the college student who's not motivated, you can't do their work for them. Like, you, you can't create a company out of maybe somebody who's not willing to do the work, right? No, and that's, and that's the thing is, like, I think, again, looking at the real risk factor, the risk factor is depending on somebody else. Mm-hmm. I was like, give me the ball. If I have the ball, like, let's go. Right. But then I also noticed there was only so many hours a day I could get listings and we weren't catching traction. I mean, running a business is what I learned at that time is substantially more difficult than running uh, real estate investments. Like running a real business with real people, cultural personality issues, ads, marketing, when people don't have to use you, they can use anybody. It's a service. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was like, this is not exciting. Well, you're smart to cut bait when... I, some, I look smart now. <laughs> I could. I mean, probably Zach stuck with it. Zach was a sticker. You know, Zach was really solid. Stuck with it. Followed it through. Zach's a very good business. Yeah. Run, runner. You know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we did the flip flips. Uh, then I was like, well, you know, the economy's looking good. And this is 2005, 2006. I was like, the economy's looking great. Well, what happens if the economy goes bad? Mm-hmm. Like, what business works when the economy goes bad? So this foreclosure thing. Let me dive into that more and pay a lot more attention to that and tax sales and all the things. And so we did that. Uh, I focused on it quite a bit. Still did the land development business, land sales. And sure enough, 2008 happens, and we're ready to go. Like, we are loaded. We are got money. We're debt-free. We've been ready for this. We see all the, the deals going down. We're ready to buy it. And then the Troubled Asset Relief Program kicks in. We're thinking this is going to be like the RTC days. Like our grand, our father-in-law made a ton of money when the market dropped in the 80s. I was like, this is what we're going to do. This is our moment. And uh, the banks didn't have to liquidate any of their assets because the government bailed them out. Mm-hmm. And in Texas, Texas was different everywhere else. Texas was strong. You know, the prices didn't drop, but they didn't go up, but they stayed. And so people didn't sell. So we were right every way but we're also 100% wrong. Right. I'm curious, you know, you're talking about 06 and that timeline when I think probably not a lot of people, there's a reason the movie The Big Short's out there, not a lot of people saw the writing on the wall at that time. Was there something that, that kind of teed you up to it and made you think maybe that was coming around the corner? It's a great question because, yes, my father-in-law was like, guys, people are buying land at really high prices. There's a lot of people getting into this business and to the real estate game. We've seen this before. And he has an old saying, when bankers are getting in the business, you need to be getting out. And he said, because they're the most cautious of all invest investors. And when you would see your bank is like, well, 
I just saw Joey buy some land and sell it for a whole lot more money in 30 days with a no document signature loan. Well, I think I'm going to do the same. Mm -hmm. So when you see your bankers investing in your field, just like he's like, okay, that's you've hit the top. Mm -hmm. And so we I remember saying it yesterday. And so we we're like, we looked at that. We we're like, he's not wrong. We think these numbers aren't going to hold. When you can buy 100 acres for the same price you can buy 10 acres, you know, there's no arbitrage in selling the, the pizza slices. Right. Yeah, that's that's when you need to be careful. Something's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what we do is we kind of we, – we, we were ready for it. Um, and then when that happened and we we were ready to go, we were the foreclosure business was interesting, but there wasn't a lot of crazy deals. Mm -hmm. The commercial side, there was crazy deals. And the residential sure. side, nothing. And so we started getting into our first deal was a Chapter 11 uh, bankruptcy deal. And that's a good story. I, that's a really interesting. Story. <laughs> well, let's hear it. Okay. So um, we were, it was like a couple days before Christmas, and uh, we had a deal that was uh, a banker called me. I had just been in his office a month before. I said, hey, I want to buy some non-performing assets, non-performing notes. And he's like, I don't have any. And I was like, well, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, you're no problem. If you do, let me know. Come to find out, he calls me a week before Christmas, says, we've got a deal that's in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. We need this thing to go. I can't afford to take a haircut on it. And I'll keep the banker's name, everybody confidential, because I think I'm supposed to. And uh, great guy, great banker, extremely intelligent. And he said, we can't take a haircut, but we're going to be required by the regulators to, to put this in non-performing, and that's going to hurt the bank's books. And at the time I didn't know what that meant. Mm -hmm. All I knew is just that he didn't like it. And I was like, okay, well he goes, but I know you are charming, charismatic, and you're not held by the bank regulators or anybody's regulators. So if I sell this note to you, you most likely can persuade this borrower to, um, to, to come to their senses and just simply just pay us off. Mm -hmm. And I said, it's got good collateral. It's a ranch in South Texas, and it's an office building in San Antonio. It's the same person. Why don't we'll just sell it to you because you are of good credit, and it, you will pay the interest on the note, and now it'll be a performing asset. So, mm -hmm. so definitely some regulatory vocabulary changing there, but legitimate, legal, and 100% mm -hmm. legit. And it solved the bank's problem without taking a loss and gave me an opportunity. I said, well, one of the, he was like, I just want you to use our attorney for the bankruptcy. I don't want you to use some stupid attorney and risk it going really, really bad. Mm -hmm. So we pretty much got a free chapter 11 walkthrough tutorial. And uh, so the ranch is in South Texas. I don't like the loan to value. It's too expensive. But I was like, we'll do it. So we go down to South Texas to look at this. And this ranch is, uh, you know, it's it's uh, right on I-35. And... And so a longer story, sh you know, made short is we are eventually, you know, brought the idea of thinking that, you know, perhaps we should do saltwater disposal wells and be the landowner. And I was like, well, what's a saltwater disposal? Well? What's that? So we Google everything. We do research and we uh, get some, meet some consultants out of Austin. And these guys out of consultants out of Austin say, well, if you get a permit on your real estate in South Texas or in the, in the oil field and you get that approved, which can take up to 18 months, cost a hundred something thousand dollars to do. Um, we could probably sell that permit for 500,000 to $1.5 million. And you get to collect a royalty off of every barrel of water that's injected into the formation, injected in the ground. And I was like, wait a minute, we can buy land in South Texas, 10 acres, 
for 150 grand is a really high price, you know, but we 50 to 150 grand and some, and we do the legal pro- paperwork and somebody might give us $500,000 for mm-hmm. the permit. And then everything else is just extra. And then they put a three or $4 million facility on your property that you own the land. And now you have a royalty against up the income. I was like, this is a genius. Mm-hmm. So what we learned from that business was, is why everybody in the oil and gas was focusing on oil and gas. Nobody was paying attention to the water. And so if you're not familiar with saltwater disposal wells, when you drill an oil well, there's pretty much three things that come out of the ground. Oil, natural gas, and 65 million year old salt water. And it's called produced water. And it's because it's pretty produced with the oil. And so what comes up, the oil comes to the surface. They separate the... Uh, the gas goes, and that's sometimes what you see in the flare stacks that are burning off. And then that goes into a pipeline, and then they have the separating the oil and the water. And oil goes into one tank, which then goes to the trucks or to the pipeline or to the refinery. And then the water is separated, and the water needs to go into a disposal well. And the disposal well is a well that is drilled into a, a 55,000 year or 75,000, 75 million year formation. Reason being now, you don't want this. This is not drinking water that you want in your water table. You want to send that back down to. It's been sitting with oil for 65 <laughs> million years, yeah. you know, so it is some nasty water. Right. And you could clean it up with enough energy and power and money, but it's got heavy metals in it. It's it's just not it's not good. right. And so, yeah, you want to get rid of it and you want to put it back into back mostly where it came from. So and just to frame this timing. Right. Yeah. So this is. While we're starting to see 2011, yeah. so so yeah, we're middle of a recession, right? Yeah. We're we're coming out of 2008 a little bit, yeah. maybe starting to see yeah. the beginnings of the other side of it. And meanwhile, in Texas, we're having this major fracking boom, and yeah. everybody's running like the gold rush yep. to the Permian Basin, and yep, and and so you're sitting there with some land in South Texas, trying to figure out, hey, all these chapter, all, all these yeah. deals were that we hoped were there aren't there because the banks bailed everybody out, and so maybe we've got an opportunity on our hands. Yeah, like so if this lady. I'm just thinking of this property. What happens if I foreclose on this lady? Because mm-hmm. she is insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, this lady, this was rough. Like, <laughs> she turned one of the buildings into a strip club. This is the loan you assumed? Yeah. Oh, wow. That was a real fun day in court. When you show up <laughs> to the court and the judge is like, I was like, you're honest on the front page of the San Antonio paper. Like, <laughs> oil field turned strip club down oh, there. Man. And we're, I, was, I didn't know it was a strip club. And I, I'm worried. I'm like, my wife's going to find out that I'm managing a strip club. And I was like, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> It's not what I've been doing down there in no, South Texas. No, not at all. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so we ended up, the, the lady was just, she was, you know, like a lot of people, when you get in a tough spot, you know, scrambling. Mm-hmm. And uh, oil fields making a bunch of money. I mean, she she was going to do whatever it took to pay off her property or to keep it. Right. You know? And uh, so, um, so we were trying to figure out what to do with this property if we foreclose on it. So the sole disposal idea was a good idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we meet with these consultants in Austin. They tell us everything. They tell us the, the entire business and game plan. They give us the, the structure. And the guy that brought it brought this idea to us, we uh, made him a partner. And I knew him. And then uh, we ended up uh, starting this business together. And me, Zach, and another uh, real estate partner. And uh, so we had four of us. And so I was like, let's name it Four Fountains. Great company called Four Fountains. And... Uh, we go get permits, and I take the whole entire foreclosure real estate team that was used to finding people that didn't pay their bills and didn't answer the phone. And we laid out maps and said, all right, let's pick the acupuncture grid of the oil field, and let's get every intersection and corner that is geologically possible. Mm-hmm. And 
within 60 days, we had 36 properties under contract with options. And we said, we'll buy this property for you. It's worth 80 grand, but I'll pay you 120, $150,000 for this property if you'll give us the time to get our permit. So when our permit's approved, we'll close on the property. So everybody's like, yeah, these guys are stupid. They're paying so much money for this property. Like, we're happy to take it. So you put them on an 18-month option or something? Year, year, yeah, like year? a year, 18-month option. And uh, and they were just like, you're, you know, they thought they it was a good deal for them. We're paying way over market. And right. this is early, very, very, very early. So in 60 days, we have 36 properties under option. We give these to the consultants. Consultants are like, nobody has ever done this before, ever. They're blown away. And so... We were like, we're going to submit for more disposal permits in the state of Texas than have been approved in the past five years. Like, that's all going at once. Everybody's going to lose it. So I was like, okay, let's dis- let's break this up into three different companies so they don't think it's just one company. Mm. And we don't want the governor shutting us down because, well, for whatever reason, you know, the politics, right? There's sure. just things happen. And um, so we make a strategic move to do that. And then... Um, we, me and Zach go down to the oil field. I remember this like it was yesterday. We go down to like by Dilly and and uh, uh, I think it was Ensenal and then a bunch of other places. And we drive down there, and there is no, there's nothing. There's mesquite trees, deer leases, and that's it. And so we're like, man, we're either incredibly early, like we're very early, and nobody knows what we know, or we are completely wrong. Yeah, like like we're just. Real stupid. Right. Real dumb. Early and right are the biggest suckers in the room. Oh, man. And so we had already invested a good amount of money, probably a hundred grand at this point in time, and options, earnest monies, and all this stuff. That's a lot of money to us. And to be wrong is going to suck. It's going to set us back three or four years, right? Mm. And so we're all right. Well, let's stick with it. The numbers say it. We see the drilling permits. Let's, let's, there's a moment there, gut check. Okay, stay the course. So we stay the course. And not 60 days later, we make another trip back down there after checking on our permits. We go back to check on the properties, meet some more landowners, get some more stuff under contract, and we go down there. And there are oil field trucks and rigs everywhere. I mean, it's like playing on I-35. And they're everywhere. And uh, we're like, oh, my gosh, we're right. And let's let's go. And so we end up doing that business, doing the permit business. We end up successfully selling several, several, like 16, 17 permits for over $500,000 each. I mean, that $120,000 investment made multiple millions of dollars. And Mm -hmm. it was very, 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 very exciting. And uh, and what we kind of found, just again, kind of being the entrepreneur, seeing the opportunity, we just kind of see, you know, every buyer that wanted to buy a permit wanted to know the same thing, the checklist. Where's the oil wells? How far is it? What oil company is going to you know, take the water to us, mm-hmm. like trying to de-risk it just like we would. And uh, so then I was like, why don't we just come up with the answers? Let's just fill in the box. So one of our locations, I was like, we got this permits taking a little longer to get approved. I'm, in the meantime, why don't I just go get all the answers? The oil company is going to be this company. This let's, why not have them pipe it to our well? They don't need to use trucks anymore. Let's get their entire acreage dedicated to us and let's do it. And so we, we teed one deal up that way. And then I was like, they're the old company said, Jason, we like dealing with you. And tell us the truth. We're dealing with a whole bunch of other. We know that you might sell this asset to somebody else and want to deal with somebody else. So why don't we just give you the agreement? We'll pipe in the water and you get the acreage dedication and you drill the well. I was like, all right, let's do that. 
let's do that. So uh, we ended up meeting some good friends, some guys. We put some money together. We drilled this well, and it's it goes fine. Build the facility, turn the well on, get the oil company to bring the water, and in 30 days we're we're bought out by a, a you know a company and it's a great deal. So let's say on one of these deals, you're saying you're making five hundred thousand just for selling the permit, right? With all your costs into it, mm-hmm. if you're turning around and selling the well, the operational well, all of a sudden, what kind of difference is there in that in that margin? Oh, so that deal there, we ended up making personally, like we made four million bucks in like thirty days. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> so it, it it turned out to be a great deal. I mean, for us, it was just an amazing so, opportunity. So about what you just said, two two things stick out to me. There were two points in that process where a rational mind might have hairs sticking up on the back of their neck and may back out of something like that. You go down to the oil field with Zach, with your yep. partner, and or I guess we'll call it the oil field, but you're saying there's nobody there. Nothing. Is it just, right? Yeah. And then you turn around 60 days later, and you feel like, okay, we got it right. I'm curious in, in that period and then the other period where these guys are coming to you and saying, hey, we really like dealing with you. We want you to go do this business yourself. Yeah. What are you thinking in those situations? What kind of things in your kind of in the way that you view the world or the way that you view yourself makes you feel confident in the middle of saying, you know what? I could be wrong, but I'm going to go ahead, put my head down and get this thing done. I'm going to say we were not confident. I'm going <laughs> to tell you the truth. Like, no, um, I think, you know. I think one of the secrets to being successful for us is being mostly correct and being okay with that. Mm-hmm. Like most people really want to work and make sure they're a hundred percent perfectly correct. Mm-hmm. Not, not, not us. If I can get up to six or 70% mostly correct, that that's, that's okay with me. Uh, I'm all, I'm also trying to focus on how do I be uh, mostly not wrong? You know I mean? That's a bigger one is like, again, is just like, if I can see that we're, we're mostly correct and that the chances of being wrong are very, very, very low mm-hmm. or less traumatic or severe, then that's okay. So kind of like, here's my chances for a good outcome. Here's my chances for an outcome I can live with. And here's my chances for something I really would rather Devastating. Yeah. Devastating, right? And so our money was like, always, do I got, is there more chances for me at the house to win? Then we're going to play a bet on the house. Right. And so I would say not confident, but... Just, uh, yeah, I'd say be mostly correct. And then what that does is it allows us to to continue to move forward. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people will stop and not move until they've analyzed, read everything, done everything. They're not making any significant progress. And because you're not making any progress, you're, you're stuck in this constant evaluation mode. Mm-hmm. And what is really happening is that window of opportunity is closing closer and closer and closer. And by the time you figure it all out, you've got now like a, a dart to shoot through there. Yeah, you're, you're, you're blowing up the Death Star at that point, yeah. right? <laughs> well, like for us, where we're mostly correct, we're in the middle of it. Right. And so whatever problems or f- solutions we're coming up with in the, in the short period of time, we're, we have already won. Right. And, and it is one of our opportunities we're working on right now is I, I feel like we have a short window of opportunity. Right. And uh, I think that's really the secret to a lot of the success is being mostly correct having a little bit of intuition of instincts mm. and then um, moving with incredible speed. Yeah. Speed. Well, I will say that's one thing I feel like you do have, which is a across all these things we're talking about, just a bias towards action, yeah. right? And that doing something a lot of times with a pretty good idea is better than doing nothing until you got it all the way dialed in. Yeah. I, I, you just can't, uh, my, I was a daydreamer in school and not 
I mean, I got decent grades, and but I, I just wasn't my jam. I was always not understanding how this was going to help me, mm-hmm. and I didn't understand like so. School was just not my jam uh, academically, but um, when when I got to go do framing or carpenter work or physical work and or just you know anything physical, and I could touch it, feel it, then I was like, okay, now I get this, and I could absorb everything and and not forget any of it. So I knew my game was always in some component having to be like a, a physical understanding. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's what I love about real estate. Everything in real estate's physical. I mean, what I hated about the oil and gas space was there's a whole way down there in the ground. <laughs> you know, and you don't know if anything's going to come out of it. Right. And I'm like, how do I see that there's $8 million in drilling this oil well? Right. And you don't. There's a... There's a, a part of chance in that. Somebody super smart, right? Or mostly guessing, <laughs> right? And uh, we just never had the ability to recover that kind of loss, right? That's why we didn't do that game. Well, what you did do, and what you talked about a little bit, was the saltwater disposal well business. You'd permitted a bunch of these at this point. You'd actually made a saltwater disposal well, drilled the hole in the ground, and then sold that business to someone else. Yeah. And then you went on to found Clearwater Resources, right? Which was operating a bunch of these saltwater wells down. Yep. In, in, in oil country. So yeah. talk us a little bit through about how that transition worked and why you decided to get an operator business yeah. um, after spending so much time as a land salesman and a developer yourself. So it's a, it's a great question because it kind of helps explain how we became chairman. Okay. Is um, most people would say, oh, I'm a real estate agent. I don't do saltwater disposal wells. I mean, I was, well, we did whatever made the most money. Mm-hmm. That's illegally. As long as it made the most money, that's what we did. And so if, you know, don't label yourself as X, you know, that I'm just a, a real estate agent. Don't, all I do is sell land. And, and I, you know, I think a lot of people limit themselves mm-hmm. a lot. And so if you're an opportunist and you're just a solution provider for problems, that's where most of the value comes. And that's money follows value. That's mm-hmm. all there is to it. And so what we were doing when that was we were solving problems for our buyers, ended up solving our own problem right? and the old company's problem. Ultimately, the customer was the old company, and they had the problem of getting rid of the water. So solving their problem was a lot more lucrative than solving the buyer's problem. And so we didn't know it until we just got into it. And so then once we got into operating and drilling, we took the money from, the, from that one disposal well, and we bought two more. We found good deals. We knew the permits. We knew the royalties, how much these things would make. So we bought two more locations from a company that wasn't doing well, that just basically was a bigger company that didn't have as much hustle mm-hmm. in them as we did. And um, and so we got after that. And then we had a bunch of other permits, more permits to drill more locations. So we had a growth story for our, our business. And oil was doing like $120 a barrel at this time. So anybody could get in the oil and gas business and look smart. Everybody looked really intelligent. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think somebody, J.P. Morgan or somebody, comes out and says, oil's going to be $200 a barrel. And we're like, just like in the oil and gas space, we were like, oh, man, this is getting hot. But we had the game plan. We were organically on the like ground. Like you said, when your bankers <laughs> start yeah. Yeah. start getting their hands in it. Yeah. But, again, you know, so we, we got into that, and we were, you know, oil, oil, for, disposables were making $500,000 a month in oil sales. I mean, we were making a lot of money. And it wasn't that complicated of a business. It was pretty simple. Uh, you had oil field workers, which had wonderful work ethic at this time. Everybody's new in the game. And one thing I would say is, like, you know, 
anybody that said they were a, an experienced geologist, an experienced petroleum oil man at this point in time, um, nobody was experienced with hydraulic fracturing. Like hydraulic fracturing just happened. Mm -hmm. This is the first time people are dealing with millions of barrels of water. So I don't care if you had 20 years of oil experience. You and I are starting out at the same stage today as a kid out of college with this new technology. So I have the same amount of experience as you do. Right. And there's no way you got more experience than me in hydraulic fracturing because you, you weren't doing it. Mm -hmm. So I love that aspect that there's a, a change in technology that leveled the playing field. Right. And now any entrepreneur could get into it. And that's really what happened. Most disposal guys were, were from the real estate game. Hmm. And looking back, we should have had more confidence and more gusto and we should have been leasing the land for the oil wells. I know people that did that, and they made billions. But we were just, you know, I would say at this time, we were a little less big picture, more just sure. what can we chew. Oh, it's yeah. and a good base hit yeah. still, yeah. right? And so so when we got into that, bought two more disposables, drilling wells, we ran a process, and we got to uh, meet uh, a private equity group out of New York. And, you know, as a Texas guy, operator guy you hear all the stories of somebody just being smarter than you and stealing your company and running into the ground and being horrible to deal with uh and i will tell you uh the people that i dealt with in new york have been some of the best business people i've ever met in my entire life and and for us what i realize is that was the Houston and Dallas guys not wanting our deal to get to New York. Mm. It was the brokers. It was the local Texas guys that were supposed to be have your back that were actually the ones that were the ones you should be worried about. Mm. When you get to New York, if a New York guy can trust, have a Texan that he can actually trust, is something he wants and desires. He doesn't want to deal with the Houston or the Dallas guys. He wants the source. Mm -hmm. And if he's got somebody that has business ethics – and he can trust with to watch his kids, and not to mention his money. Uh, that's worth more than millions. And what I learned was is that strong desire that they had was the same desire that we had, and it was just that vocabulary. It was like a Miami, Florida kid moving to Seattle, Washington, and being able to adjust and understand people. And uh, it worked out great. And I, I talked to my friend last night. You know, a guy that closed our deal and amazing, one of the most intellectual heavyweights I've ever met in my entire life and uh, his name is david schiff and he's just amazing mm -hmm. and uh and so i remember we were walking to the board meeting and this guy's looking at probably 10 deals big 20 deals today and it's lunchtime and so we finally wait our turn and we get to go in there and talk to him and and i start telling him about our business and what's going on within five minutes this guy knows everything about our business and in five minutes, he's telling me strategy of what are we doing and how should we grow and what are we doing to get done and this and that. Like, just cuts it up like razor blades. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I just got in the ring with Evander Holyfield here. <laughs> like, I'm bobbing and weaving, answering his right. questions because he's coming in hot. And he's asking me all the questions, testing the business and withstanding it. And I'll never forget it. I was like, man, this is the moment. This is like when college, they were talking about, like, doing deals and meeting people. I was like you got to hold your own here. And right. what I also learned is all the instincts you learn as a kid going to all these different schools was you got to always tell the truth. You, you know, you bullshit is sniffed and smelled so fast. Mm -hmm. Like don't polish this, just 
tell the truth. Like, don't try to clean it up. Don't try to make it any better than what it is. Don't try to put some slick oil on this or nothing. Like, just straight up raw, unfiltered truth. Because when you're getting punches thrown at you that fast, you ain't got time to think. Right. And you can trip go. over your shoelaces real quick if you got one thing. Real on. fast. Yeah. <laughs> real fast. And, and David could drag that out of you in two seconds. Right. And so hit it off. And, you know, a lot of people like to talk about all the good times. Let me tell you about the bad times. So we closed our deal like August 14th, 2014. Oil's $130 a barrel, something crazy. And two weeks later, oil just drops. And it drops. And it keeps going. And we're scrambling. Our revenue goes from $500,000 a month per well down to like nothing. Like oil's gone. And... We're screaming. We did everything right. Like, it, I mean, we're about we're about, we're supposed to drill two more disposal wells in 30 days, and we had structured an earnout, and I had put a lot of money invested back into the company, and I was me and David were going to take this company, we're going we're going to blow it out together, right? And uh, it just the world's falling all about around here, and I, it's global commodity. You can't do anything to stop it, and I'm just that's not our nature. I'm just trying to fix everything. And I remember thinking, I was like, I got to do this call, David. He's going to kill me. He's going to think I stole all the oil out of the gas field. <laughs> He's going to think I took it. Somehow I knew this was going to happen, right? right? And, I, and I took a phone call, man. And, you know, when you could be extremely upset and mad, like you would see on a TV show, throwing things against the wall or whatever, I'm always just like, all right, I got this. We're in this foxhole together. What do, can I do to help you? Mm-hmm. And dude was just solid, solid the entire time. Like was solid, like never, ever raised his tone or voice with me through the thickest of the thick of times. And uh, he always knew in his heart that I was giving it everything I got. And he always knew that there was nobody else better to work on it than me. And uh, so just I through those things there appreciated uh, the maturity, the intellectual things. And I want to tell, and I say this story because it was so important for anybody in Texas that is thinking about, or the Southern mentality is thinking that you can only do business with Southern mentality folks is wrong. Mm-hmm. Like uh, there are just amazing folks that have better character and better morals about them than most people you'll ever meet. Sure. So I, so I said that with that because that was really really important for me at a young age to. Um, to be dialed in. And for that guy's personality, for that guy's character, if this business went to zero, I was going to ride it with him. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we did is I, I wrote it for the next three years mm-hmm. and we squeezed every nickel we could and everything. We ended up reducing our staff down to almost nothing. And uh, we were the only saltwater disposal company in Eagleford to successfully make it out, in my opinion, like profitably. Everybody else mm-hmm. went bankrupt. Wow. It sucked. Well, you've seen the good parts of it. And I think to your point, right, you've had a lot of successes and you're not, you don't shy away from talking about the hard parts at all. And Mm -hmm. I think you talk about, you know, the reason for the, this, this podcast being named the American chairman. I think you have a personal connection with what it means to be a chairman because it, because you were the chairman of that company. Yep. You're now the chairman of Eden development group. You, You consider yourself, I think that role. And I think you've probably in all your business experiences, taking some inspiration from people like David, yeah. taking from inspiration as to the type of person you want to be and, and really, I think, the what what it means to be a chairman. So I'm curious, after you hearing, talking about David and a negative yeah. experience like that, what what did that experience kind of 
made you into the person you feel like you are now? And you know, I think you go from being the doer, and you go from being the um, you go from being the guy that's just the the blocking and tackling, and and then and then you you know you, the white knuckler, the will, willing your way to win. And when you realize, you know, oil is bigger than any man can will. You know, it just is, and and things are out of your control. You know, we went through cultures of of great cultures and cultures of downsizing and the, the, the cutthroating of human nature can be to survive. And, and you get to see all that. So when I also realized that I can do real estate sales, I can do real estate development, I can do chapter 11 bankruptcies, I can do workout agreements. By the way, the lady paid off one day before we foreclosed on it. <laughs> and that was a very interesting deal. Sure. Uh, the... Um, you know, then you go into saltwater disposal wells. Why not do oil wells? Why not do anything? Because business is fundamental, right? Problems are fundamental. And if you can come up with solutions for just fundamental problems, you create value. And when you create that value for those problems, money is there waiting for you. And so what I realized is like, okay, well, you don't necessarily need to be uh, the most intelligent about a subject or deal, but you need to have a fundamental building block recipe of success. How do I put my money into an investment? How do I recover that initial investment so I can do another deal? And that net nest egg of money allows me to go do more. And then whatever's left over is great. Mm-hmm. And then when you start with that, and then you get into people, and then when you look, I met this guy named Joe Ritchie, was one of the richest guys in the country, financed his own private war against the Taliban. Total awesome guy, like one of the best guys I've ever met. And he said, Jason, I think he's like a psychology professor, got degree, something like that. And he and he goes, Jason, when you realize you're investing in assets, so when you build that house, fix that house, and sell that house, it made you money one time. When you start making an investment into people, people will make you money for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And he goes, so once you start shifting and evolve and graduate a little bit to, to investing in people like you would assets, um, then your life's going to change. And I was like, Cool. So we tried that right out of the box, and we failed a couple times right <laughs> away. Like, and what we didn't learn that there people are people, and uh, there are just like real estate, there are mitigating factors with personalities, profiles, and things like that. You got to be mm-hmm. really careful with. And we thought everybody was was wants to get rich and make money. Right. Not really. Everybody, not everybody wants to work. And then some people. People change, you know, life is a journey and you may be this person today, but 10 years from now with a couple kids and things like that, you may be mentally a completely first. Your ambition may be gone. Right. You have no idea. And wouldn't that be a good saying though? If you teach a man to fish and he brings you a lot of fish, you know, it's super cool. <laughs> super cool. It's a great idea. And I think if you do it, you know, more than one and, um, what else? And so we've got to meet amazing people through our management of all these employees and all these right. businesses. We got to see like, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we got uh, Jake, president of Clearwater. I mean, started as an intern. Within three years, he's president of the company. Mm-hmm. I mean, just by far one of the best investments in a person you could possibly ever make. He could run any company I've ever had. No bones tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I could give him anything, and he could. He could. I, he would do so much better than me about it because, quite frankly, he just cares more. Right. And he's a great manager of business. It's hard to believe somebody who cares more than you. Well, again, like the like the apartment leasing company, right? Sure. I cared till I didn't care. <laughs> so then you're like, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. So I guess to, to kind of round it all up, I want to talk a little bit more recently. Cause gotten up to now, I think, trying to think of what year we're on. 
we're we're mid 2010s, right? Mm. 2014. Now that we're or so. 2014, uh, riding into 2016. Yeah, yeah, 2017. Now it's three years. Seven. So so you've kind of gone back and and dipped back in into the real estate game. Yeah. And now run Eden Development Group yep. and Upward Communities and a couple other entities under that umbrella. Owns property with all kinds of different uses here in town and around Central Texas and in this I-35 corridor. So get us up to speed on what it is you're doing now yep. and how your role has kind of evolved there. So after kind of exiting the oil and gas business, so we skipped probably three or four businesses that were acquired, developed, sold, run be after that. And it, it, we, if we had more time, I'd go through much more detail, but it's the same song, second verse. Yeah. Okay? So... Uh, sitting at home at the dining room table, driving my wife insane, I just said, look, we're going to do land deals. You know, and when, when Zach, when I, we sold the initial company, Zach went and did nothing but real estate, stayed in his lane, focused on that, and, and just killed it. Just did great. And I look back at my tax returns on P&Ls, and I'm like, man, I made a lot more money doing real estate, working a lot less days with a lot less employees, a lot less headache just doing that. Let's go back to building an efficient system with real estate of land development and doing those things. And I said, well, you know, the world's different now and it's changing, evolving. Land development is getting more difficult. You need more approvals. You need more authority. You need more water, more sewer. All these things have gotten so much more difficult than what it was in 2005. And so uh, I said, well, difficult can be good. Difficult can be a good barrier to entry, but difficult can also be you know, difficult. And so I was like, so let's take a look at all that and got back into buying a couple of land deals, bought two simple land developments where we did those really fast, made, made, you know, 200, 300% return on our money. There was great deals. And, um, this is when there are still deals to be had in Texas. Yeah. This was before everybody else in the country came to Texas, yeah. you know, this is before COVID. Right. Yeah. And, uh, so then, uh, you know, COVID happens and, we see everybody come to Texas again, you know, and uh, we get into the RV business. We buy a whole bunch of distressed real estate on the water and that's entertainment businesses, et cetera. And we know that it's a good location, so it's going to come back. And we end up selling those for a profit in six months or so really, really well. And then um, we uh, start doing residential developments and we see there's massive bottlenecks again. So I'm like, okay, just like the disposal business, you know, What's the bottleneck for for certain home builders, which I won't mention their names, but they, their problems were their land guys weren't as good as us. They land guys got land in the contract, but had no water going to it. And there was no way to get water to it. Right. The thought there was, but there wasn't. And in Texas, we say when it comes to land development, you're really finding where the water is. Well, first off, absolutely. And then that, and then there's an 18 month backlog on sewer permits being approved. So you have this disposal situation again, but on the sewer side of things. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're like. Well, I mean, why don't we just get a whole bunch of sewer permits and get that solved that problem? And so, um, so we start going through the fundamental, you know, roadblocks of I, if I have this product, people will pay this much money for it. What's it going to take to get that product? And you start doing the, the flow chart of how to get there and you go through the problems and then you start creating solutions. So then we find the water. We're like, okay, what's the best water company guy that we know that can tell us where the water is or where it's going? And what would it take to get it to there? And then when you start knocking on those doors, those real, those landowners that don't have their property on the market for sale, and you say, look, I can develop your property and I can pay you this much money for it because you have a water line in front of your property. Mm-hmm. Then they're like, okay, then you can buy that property and now you got a land deal. But it wasn't there. 
It wasn't finding it. You had to go make it. And it's, it's a great story. I was talking to David the other night about this. Is like we got a, a potential water deal on our table. We can drill the water well, and the municipality needs the water, but they don't have the money to dedicate to drilling this well and putting this pipeline in. But if we produce it, they'll buy it from us all day. Mm-hmm. So because the water company doesn't, the municipality doesn't have the money for it, there's an opportunity there. It's just not available to them because they don't want to spend money on it. But what do we do? We'll spend money all day on it, but we got to go manufacture that situation. That wasn't listed with somebody. It wasn't on the open marketplace like here, drill a well for us and send an RFQ out and then we'll sure. give out bids. No, it was just a little there. bit of an identified problem, yeah. a way around it, a solution, knowing a municipality won't won't pay for it up front and shoulder any of the risk, but yeah. they'll pay for it on the backside yeah. with a return. And you're willing to do the work? Mm-hmm. Well, that's, we just, we're too busy. We don't have time to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And every municipality is understaffed and always too busy. So I guess looking forward to, because you talk about a lot of things that are going on nowadays, real estate, water, still looking at Central Texas real estate and, and land deals. What is a big opportunity that you see? What do you think's out in front of you? You know, I think, um, I think you got to zoom out is a great way to say it. I think you got to zoom out a little bit. And you got to say, not just San Marcos, Central Texas. You got to zoom out and say, let's look at Texas. Now let's just look at the whole country. Mm-hmm. And then let's even somewhat look at the whole world. Like, we're not Ray Dalio. He's a great guy. He's got, he's, he's leagues above information on us. But let's just pretend for a second, like we, our instincts are telling us what people's behavior patterns are going to be and what people are going to do that's best for them. And when you zoom out, you say, okay, out of all the places we wore all over the the country last year, um, where's the most construction going on? Texas. You know, where's the most jobs right now? Texas. That's the oil and gas industry. That's good and bad in, in those things. Uh, where's most manufacturing going to happen in the near future? Mexico. You know, and so you start seeing all these different things. And then you just look around. Just look around. How many cars are on the four or six lane highway? A lot. Mm-hmm. How many High, lanes are on the highway in Tennessee, too. You know, and Tennessee's a wonderful state, but it's it is a drop in the bucket compared to Texas. You know, we look at Florida. Florida's great, but it's still it is certain sections, and there's only so much swamp available, right? So, I think if you zoom out and you just say like, "Where's the movement going to be?" and if you're if you throw yourself in a market where there's lots of movement, there's lots of problems, lots of opportunity, and lots of lots of money. And so that's what I think what we're looking at is in Texas. And I think, look what happened in COVID. You had everybody move to Texas during COVID. And that is an indicator. A lot of people are not going back. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look at that and you say, well, if I want to make an investment today and all I got to be is mostly correct, then, and if I'm wrong, am I drastically wrong where I'm going to lose all my money? No, I'm probably just not going to make a lot. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to lose my money. Or maybe the timeline on your investment is different than you thought it was, and you may be a couple years off or whatever it is. But but I could make an investment in Pennsylvania. And Never be right. Probably lose all my money, yeah. right? Or yeah. Indiana, somewhere I just don't have a clue. Nothing against Pennsylvania or Indiana. No, they're fine. <laughs> but you know, I'm just I'm saying, like, there's a place that is not, uh, you know, where you're familiar with what's going on, and. You, you don't have the ability to pivot and come up with solutions. Well, and I think this too. I mean, I think the world Texas. I think there are more tailwinds here mm-hmm. than there are anywhere else in the country for reasons stated yeah. for you. And I think truthfully, if you ask anybody, 
you had to drop me anywhere in the world mm-hmm. and say you got to make a million dollars, you don't know anybody, you don't know anything about it, I think a lot of people would choose New York, maybe mm-hmm. New York City. Mm-hmm. Drop me on the street in, in the middle of New York City. Drop me in Texas. I mean, I'd take Texas any day because yeah. you got to have some hard skills in yeah. New York City. But you come get dropped in Texas, yeah. it may just be that you could have an opportunity, shake some hands, meet some people, and find a way to find some arbitrage or a good business opportunity just by the fact of being here. Yeah, and I, I think so. You know, if you just mostly focus on being mostly correct, mm-hmm. um, focus on the the traumatically damage of being wrong mm. and avoid that. And then, um, and with real estate specifically, if you do your homework and you're not lazy, the, the fault on losing money is you, it's on your shoulders. I'll take that ball all day mm. when I got to rely on something else or, uh, demand cycle from something else that I can't control or can't see, can't touch. It's a hole in the ground, et cetera. That's a whole different ball game. Right. You know? So what I think the things that I'm seeing in our space right now is uh, the housing crisis. And I hate using the word crisis, but it's actually a real problem. And I mean, I mean, I mean, because some people use the word crisis as a dramatic way of like, oh, my God, we got to do something today about right. it. And, you know, people are pretty damn resilient. People are are, are tough, especially Americans. Are right. Tough. And we're going to figure out a way to make it work. That's just what we do. And so. Um, I do think there is a problem that is not this. Nobody is really providing the solution fast enough. And what the reality is, is with interest rates, with cost of goods, cost of living, cost of things, the, the ripple effect from inflation hasn't really hit the wages yet. It, it, it will. This hasn't gone all the way through the system. And when you start increasing interest rates, you start restricting purchasing, you know, you start restri- restricting more supply. So, Naturally, any existing assets should go up, but you have this flushing of low interest rates where nobody's selling anything and there's not that capital is not able to cycle back up at a higher rate. Why would mm-hmm. you? It didn't make any sense. Don't change your monthly payment from 2000 to 4000 just to have the same property. It didn't make any sense. So what that means is we got to get very innovative. We got to get creative. We got to produce housing at a much lower basis than what we're currently doing. And so one of the, the businesses that you and I have been running into and looking into is one of the main solutions for that is uh, is the manufactured housing industry. And the manufactured housing industry is completely different from when I saw it in 2005. I mean, and what everybody thinks of, really, uh, right? Everybody thinks mobile home park, Cousin Eddie, yeah, yeah, that yeah, whole yeah, thing. Yeah. Right? And, and I think that's, you know, um, they're, they're built better, they're built more efficient, they're, they've gotten better factories, better products, better design. Uh, better standards, and I also think that uh, the stigma people are are much more open to it. They're much more open to it. If you took a a, a pros and cons list of I'm going to make this investment of one hundred twenty thousand dollars, and here's all my options, or I'm going to make an investment of three hundred thousand dollars, and here's all my options, uh, you're going to see a mobile home is going to win every single time. Right. You're going to get a lot of square footage. You're going to get a yard. You're going to get a lot of nice things. You're, and it's half the cost. Yeah. And, and if you think about I mean, I'll just yeah. pipe in to say, you think about my generation. I'm yeah. 30 years old. We've got a lot of people around my age who have dogs, don't have kids, can't think about, I mean, can't think about, even think about buying a home. Right. Right. They're like, I'm so priced out of that. I can't even imagine how I ever yeah. get to the top of that mountain to buy a home. 
They are living in apartment complexes. They're letting their dog out from five flights of stairs up, stuff like that. They're not having families till much later because they're crammed in these smaller apartments. The world's kind of crumbling around them. I mean, talking about a, a, yeah. a solution, you have to solve for, for the base low price in the market for somebody to be able to buy and own a piece of real estate or an asset that kind of lets their life springboard off of it. And right? the landlords will tell you not to buy a home. Yeah. Rent. <laughs> yeah. I, I get it. Rent. I'd promote that all day too. You know, And in a lot of sums, it makes sense for a lot of folks. Sure. But, you know... Real estate is the number one way, in my opinion, to generate wealth in America. Yeah, and the thirty-year mortgage—the thirty-year mortgage—is the best, in my opinion, like the best vehicle for wealth creation for the average American that's ever okay. existed. Now you can't be stupid. You got to do your homework. Sure. You got it. Ain't going to be easy. You got to work. You know, and you just you got to work. If you work it, it is a guaranteed way to become a millionaire if you work. Mm -hmm. And no other business. Walgreens was never going to make me a guaranteed millionaire. Doesn't that wasn't going to happen? Mm -hmm. You know, but. Buying one house, one mobile home, or 10 mobile homes, or one house at a time, or an apartment complex, or whatever, investing in that, investing in yourself, and white-knuckling yourself, uh, that can make you a millionaire. Mm -hmm. And I'm passionate about that. I, you know about me. I enjoy helping other people be very successful because a lot of people helped me get to where I'm at today. So I'm very thankful paying it forward back and passionate about that. But one of the things I think where you're going to see us focus a lot of time on, and this business is going to have a lot of tentacles that's going to go off into other things, is uh, is providing uh, world class, you know, investment grade uh, mobile home rental communities where we can either rent the units to the individuals and have the best product, the best price. I mean, it's like selling vacuums. I'm going to have the best vacuum at the best price that's going to perform the best, mm -hmm. right? Same thing with the housing. It needs to be the exact same way. And people will get over the stigma sure. of it because they're going to have $500 extra of money in their bank account every month to go on vacation and to, to live the American dream versus being slaves to their mortgage. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and just taking twice as many years of their life to amount to the same amount of equity or income at real estate investment as, as the alternative option. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to be, you're going to hear a lot about, about that. Then through that, and as this placing units and people are, are being able to have the ability to buy the houses and then rent them and have an investment vehicle for them, just like we would, uh, we treat people, if you treat people like you'd want to be treated, it usually works out really well. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to see, then we're going to get into the water, we're going to get into the sewer, we're going to get into uh, the goods being produced to manufacture these products. And uh, I think you're going to see a lot of things. And back to you know, the, the chairman part of this is um, we're open to lots of things. We're open to anything physical, right? And we are not smart. I'm not smart enough to work on software. None of us are. Yeah. No, and, and, <laughs> and uh, but I understand the zoom out part of the business and the physical component of the business is that and I'm comfortable uh, you know, getting our toe into a couple of businesses to understand things more and then look at additional investments. And it could be, you know, you could see us uh, investing in factories. You could see us investing in uh, that, you know, that the factories that even build the mobile homes, um, you know, but I think there's a lot of relationships to develop. I think there's a lot of things to do. I think you could also just focus on this one space here in this scalable space, like the RV space that we did, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, and you could dominate and you could do very well and you could never have to work again ever for the rest of your days. Um, but we enjoy work. 
we enjoy doing this. This is fun. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to have great people to work with and mm-hmm. solve problems with. Uh, it makes us better people, right? But um, so the chairman part of that is, is I just want like that's what we are. It's what we're going to do, and I want to make all of our stuff very transparent. I want to make it very visual. Am I worried about someone taking my secret sauce and competing? No, because I can smoke anybody <laughs> within 20, 30 miles of us. Not a problem. Yeah. Okay. And I take good pride. I know I work harder. I go to bed every night. My dad used to have a saying to me. He's like, when I was working out for football, and he would say, all right, I'm fixing to go. It's like 8 o'clock. I've already done two a days and fixing to go to bed. And he said, well, you know, all right, good night. He goes, but did you work harder than everybody else out there today? And are you going to be able to, can you really go to bed and sleep tonight thinking, knowing for sure that there's not somebody else out there right now going back on the track, hitting the bleachers, and getting a couple miles on you? And I would say, oh, I'm so tired. And I was like, but there probably is some kid in Japan out there running this, yeah. running the bleachers right somebody now. Somebody out there. And I was like, I've got to hit the track. And I would do hit it till like midnight just to make sure that I could tell myself I went to sleep that that kid in Japan didn't put as many steps in like as mm-hmm. I did tonight. Yeah. You know, and that's literally is it it just a, that, that saying has stuck with me for so long. I don't know why it made such an impact, but like I don't ever watch Netflix TV shows hardly ever unless my wife asked me to because. I just enjoy grinding at night. Like I'm sending you guys texts yeah. at five in the morning or whatever. I, yeah, the the thousand units in Italy that, that <laughs> yeah. came out the other night. There's a lot of great ideas, and great I think ideas. great, great, great ideas. And I think as we kind of see this American Chairman podcast develop, I think we want to talk about some of the opportunities that come across our desk. Yeah. Give some advice to somebody aspiring getting in the business, somebody who wants to make money. Talk a lot about you know the projects that we're seeing, the things that we're seeing, what's on our minds. Uh, and we're just going to try to get in a good weekly cadence of yeah. knocking that stuff out and keeping you guys informed on what's going through our yeah, heads. I think we're just going to give you you know, uh, a front row seat, front row seat to our, to our lives. And I think you know, we're, we're going to talk about charity. We're going to talk about our heart pulse and, and, and giving. We're going to talk a lot about uh, just what we do and who we are. And, and I think this is, this is what this is about is to help you understand us. And we want to make some good friends. You know, I would love nothing more right now to have a homie in Argentina that I can say, hey, let's go check out Mendoza County yeah. and go see what's going down. You know, <laughs> or uh, a coffee farm in Costa Rica and we go check it out. And now I know where all my coffee comes from because I'm buying it from somebody that I absolutely love mm-hmm. and a passion about supporting. Uh, that's what we're going to gain from a lot of things more than money. I mean, we'll make money. That's we're that's our biggest skill set is making deposits. That's not a problem. So I think that. Uh, making relationships like my friend David in New York, things like that is what life is really, really sweet about. And uh, so I want to share that and I want to do this to help translate that. And uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have a good time. We are. Yeah. We are. All right. See you, man. Cool. Good stuff. Oh, we cranked. 309. We did good.